If you'll turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7, we are going to be in a variety of places tonight, and I would encourage you to try to uh, follow along. I'll, I'll try to warn you when you need to turn, uh, but seeing these, I've found seeing is different than hearing. Um, maybe that's just me, but uh, it's one thing to hear some guy with the coat say it. It's another thing to see it in the Bible, and so I hope that that'll be the case tonight. I'm going to read a portion of God's covenant with David, which is found in two places in the Bible, uh, most prominently here in 2 Samuel 7. I'll just begin reading in verse 9. So the Lord is speaking, and the Lord says, I have been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones on the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I have appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, being David, that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up from your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Let's pray. Father, as Mark has prayed, we do ask that you would reveal yourself to us. Lord, we see in your word that your plan has been deep and broad and wide and it is complex and it is thorough and it is glorious. Help us to see that tonight and to see how it applies to our lives. I pray that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us. And as Marcus prayed, Lord, that where there is a need for conviction or encouragement or healing, Lord, that all that would take place. Give clarity as we move from place to place throughout your word and be exalted among us tonight, we pray. Amen. Well, uh, perhaps you have heard or seen the epic movie Braveheart, the 1995 film that, as a, as a teenager, captured my imagination. It's a tale of, of heroism and bravery and love and injustice and war and war and more war, right? In, in the film, William Wallace, uh, who is the protagonist, is a Scottish warrior who is fighting against the tyranny of, of English rule particularly King Edward, known as Longshanks, which just seems to be a great... If you need to name a dog, I recommend Longshanks to, uh, to be considered. Right? Longshanks is an experienced, powerful, ruthless ruler who rules with an iron fist and is known for taking a hard line against anyone who would challenge his rule. Yet his kingdom is so big that he has the pesky problem that he cannot manage it all himself. 
And so Longshanks has a teenage son, Prince Edward, whom he wants to begin giving responsibility to. The problem is, is the prince, not only is he inexperienced, but he has lived a life of luxury in the palace, privileged. At one point in the film, Longshanks tasks his son, the prince, to, uh, to put down what seems to be a minor peasant rebellion, right? He says, you're going to be king one day. You need to learn how to do this. And so he gives them some basic instructions. But the understanding is for him to act in such a way that the king himself would, right? He is to extend the king's rule. He's to use his power to further his father's interest, to make his father proud, And the prince assures his father that he can handle the task. But several months later, when Longshanks returns from from abroad, he discovers that not only has his son, the prince, failed to put down the rebellion, but he has managed to lose the entire northern army. So the king demands an account. He asks him, what have you done on my behalf? What have you done for our kingdom? And with a trembling voice, the prince very tepidly says, uh, well, I've convened a military council, right? We're talking about it. Or he said, I've sent conscriptions, right? I'm trying to get more, more military soldiers, but it's all too little too late. The king is enraged and even throws out his excessively feminine uh, buddy, military advisor, out the window, right? His son has failed, His son has failed to act, to rule effectively on the king's behalf. And in fact, things are worse than when the king even left. And so now we see the king taking matters back into his own hands. Now, it is not my intention to compare the character of Longshanks, this this old king, to the character of of God, right? Longshanks is the ruthless king of England, and God is the merciful king of kings. But in this instance, there is one thing that they have in common. Both are mighty kings who have, in some way, delegated some of their authority. They have tasked others to rule in their name. Both have given their authority to others to use well and have discovered that their vice regents are failures. And so they step back in and take care of matters themselves. Tonight we will see how God does that with the king of Israel. Now, we've had a few weeks off and we are in the middle of a series where we are tracing some of the big storylines of the Bible, particularly the covenants, which weave the storyline of the Bible together. And tonight we come to God's very important covenant with David, which we just read a portion of. It is very hard to overstate how central the covenant with David is to the Bible. Just to give you a, a, a quick, to keep your interest, every time that Jesus is called the Messiah, he, that is a reference back to the covenant of David. Every time. So we need to pay attention to this. Of all the covenants, this one stands out. You can think of it as being the kingly covenant, right? The kingly covenant where God establishes a king over Israel. 
And it's not the first indication that God intends to share his ruling responsibilities. Hopefully, if you've been here in the past, you can think back over some of these patterns. Remember that God placed Adam and Eve in the garden with what kind of responsibility? To rule. They were many kings. They were vice regents. He gave them dominion. They were to work on God's behalf. And we've said that's a big, big part of what it means to be made in the image of God. That, that they were to reflect God's character to the world in the way that they governed, in the way that they ruled. Man was to reflect the priorities and character of God. But when Adam and Eve sinned, they failed to do this and so they were cursed. And so God, in a sense, he started over. He cleansed the world with a flood and then he took Noah and gave Noah the exact same commission. I mean, it is almost word for word the exact same as what he told Adam. Well, Noah also failed. He failed to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with people who looked like God's character. And then years later, when God made his covenant with Abraham, a major part of that covenant, hopefully you remember, is that God promised to make him a nation, to give him a great nation. In other words, a kingdom. Right? This is king language. And then in the Mosaic covenant, the covenant at Israel, God tasked Israel, and this is very important, hopefully you remember, he called Israel his son. Do you remember that? He called Israel his son, right? Which is a lot like what he called Adam. And he gave him the same, gave Israel the same responsibility that Adam had failed in and that Noah had failed in. And that is to represent God to the world. Israel was supposed to live in such a way that people could look at God's people and tell it is a good thing to be under the kingship, the lordship of Jehovah God. Blessings come from obeying his law. That is a big part of the story, that all of the world is to be able to look on and see that those who live under the Ten Commandments have a happy and blessed life, and God is in their midst. They are to be the exemplar nation, the city on a hill, and show the world that when you submit to God's rule, in every dimension of life, blessing comes. Well, how did Israel do with that, right? It's almost a, it's a, pretty, a pretty old question, right? They didn't do so well. They did not show the blessing of God's kingdom. They rebelled against it, right? If you see God's word as a burden, and if you disobey, you are not showing the blessing of having God as your Lord. And so Israel failed. They refused to allow God to be their king. And we find this repeated refrain, In Judges, where it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so now we see the story narrow a bit within Israel and focus back from from a nation. It narrows its focus to a king. So we began with Adam and Eve, went to Noah, went to Abraham, and then it got really big with Israel. And then God is narrowing his focus again on a king. A head, a representative of Israel. You probably remember from your time in Sunday school or maybe your Bible reading or maybe from 1 Samuel last year that Israel wanted a king. 
right? Give us a king. And the Bible portrays this desire as a failure. But the problem was not that Israel wanted a king per se. The problem was that they wanted a king like the nations. In other words, they wanted a king that was not God, not like God. They wanted a worldly king, one who would fight their battles. And it's what you really need to understand. This is a big part of the story tonight. God always intended to give Israel a king. That's always been a part of God's plan. Do you remember the promise to Abraham and the promise to Jacob? Let me read one of them to you. God promised to Abraham, this is Genesis 17, don't turn there, but just listen. God said, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. That was his promise to Abraham. He repeated the same promise to Jacob. He also said to Jacob that one of his sons, Judah, would be kingly. In the blessing, the great blessing in Genesis 49, we hear the scepter, right, the instrument of a king, shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. Okay, so follow along with me. Not only is Judah always going to have a king, a scepter, but people from all over the world are going to come and obey him as king. Hmm, this is seeming bigger than we maybe thought at first, right? What is going on here? And there are many, many other promises that we don't have time for tonight. uh, tonight. And so, but here's what you need to understand right now. That when God agrees to give Israel a king, he had always intended to do so, not in those circumstances. He always intended to do so, and he knew exactly what he was doing, right? He wasn't being duped by the people. He knew exactly what he was doing. Doesn't he always? Does anyone need that reminder tonight? God knows what he's doing with your life. I wrote that sentence today, and I thought, I need to remember that right now. God knows what he's doing with our lives. When God gave Israel a king, it did not mean that God was giving up his authority, right? He wasn't giving up. It was actually quite the contrary. The prophets were raised up. God still spoke. Think about it. If, uh, If the president of the United States sends an ambassador to China... President Trump is not giving away his authority. There's a very real sense in which he is extending it, right? He is pushing it into a place where he is not. It's similar with the king of Israel. Now, in the book of 1 Samuel, uh, the story, if we, we, went through, we spent a year going through 1 Samuel, the story focuses on two kings in Israel, the tall one and the small one, Right? And Saul was appointed first, but he was rejected. Why? He failed to trust the Lord. Remember a couple big incidents in his life, right? Uh, One big incident is that he ignored God's instruction and spared King Agag in 1 Samuel 15. Or towards the end of his life when Saul, uh, instead of consulting God, he goes to a witch Big failure, right? He goes to a necromancer instead of the Lord. And so one of the functions of the book is is it compares and contrasts Saul and David. And the big difference that emerges is that David 
who's anointed as, as king early in the book, before he ever becomes a king. He's the Lord's anointed. David trusts in God, while Saul trusts in man. It's the, it is the big difference. And so as we come to 2 Samuel 7, right? I know we're, we're going fast and we're talking about lots of stuff, but hopefully you're following along. When we come to 2 Samuel 7 and we read about this covenant with the king, with King David and, and the sons of David, you've got to understand this context. And there's two big elements to this covenant you need to understand. The first is that God promises to build David a house. Right? We didn't read that part, but you see that there at the beginning of chapter 7. Do you remember uh, verse 2? David says to Nathan, See, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And so the idea is that David tells God, Hey, I've got this awesome house. Let me build you one too. Right? I've, got, I've already got interior designers. We can lay this out. I've got a good timber resource. Right? We, let's do this. He says, I want to, and of course, when he's talking about a house for God, what's he referring to? A temple, right? David lives in this brilliant house, and the ark of God is in a tent. And it seems like this noble idea, but God's response is a little surprising, isn't it? You remember his response? Look down at verse 5. Verse 5 and following, uh, God basically says, would you build me a house to dwell in, right? I haven't lived in a house since the beginning of all this. And he basically goes on to say, I don't need a house. I never asked for a house. And I've been with you ever since I've been in a tent. And then down in verse 11, God basically says this. He says, um, he turns the tables and he goes on to say, I will give you rest from your enemies. And then, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. I wonder if David's like, wait a minute. I already got a house, right? You just see the house? I got this great house. I was offered you to build a house. You're going to build me a house. Like, I really don't understand what's, what's going on here. What's, what's happening? Man, what an awesome ego check for David. David gets done building his epic house, has this great idea to offer God one, and then God basically says, hey, don't need your help. As it turns out, you need my help. Isn't that true for us, friends? And it turns out the language that God uses is actually, it it references back to God's covenant with Abraham. Right? He's, hopefully you saw that language about making a great name, verse 9. And, and a lot, there's a lot of language here about this established kingdom for forever. He's, reckoning, he's hearkening back to the covenant with Abraham, but then God uses a play on words to make a point. I don't need you, you need me. I don't need your house, you need my house. David wants to build God a house, a temple, And then God turns around and says, I'm going to build you a house, a dynasty. Do you see, do you you track that there? Right? It's the same word in English, house, house. But you see what God is doing there in verse 11. And what's more is that this dynasty is going to be everlasting. That's one of the ways we know it's not a physical house. Right? The, The dynasty will be everlasting. Verse 13 says, this kingdom will be forever. So clearly God has something much bigger in view. 
All right, so that's the first thing you need to understand about the covenant. God's going to build a house. We've got to figure out what that means. But the second piece is that God promises to provide a son. Look down at verse 14. So, okay, when, when I read 2 Samuel for years, this confused me. I was always like, who is he talking about here, right? Because in one sense, he's talking about Solomon, David's son. But in another sense, it is much, much bigger, as you'll see. If you look down in verse 14, God says, I will be to him, the son of David, a father, and he shall be to me a son. Okay? We've got to pay really close attention to the son language. If, 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 I, if I can't convince you now, just wouldn't we agree that the Son of God is a significant title? Okay? Right? So God is framing the covenant in terms of father-son relationship. Now remember, Adam, what does Adam mean? Son of God. Adam was the Son of God. Abraham had a special miracle son. And then now the story, well, God called Israel a son, and now the story focuses on this son of David, who will be a son of God. In one sense, God's referring to Solomon, David's immediate son. But the rest of the Bible looks back on this passage and interprets it to be much bigger than Solomon. Which makes sense, because if this kingdom is going to last forever... We've got to figure out what do we do with Solomon, the old pervert who's got bones somewhere, right? What do we do with that? So here's the thing to note so far, okay? I'm trying to keep you along with some anchors. The, king, the thing to note so far is that this covenant, listen carefully, must be fulfilled by a faithful father and a faithful son, okay? A faithful father is required, God, that's going to happen. A faithful son is required. Huh. Let's see if we can figure out how that works. Did you catch this disturbing word about discipline here? Verse 14. I will discipline him, the son, with the rod of men and with the stripes of the son of men. Oh boy. Trouble is brewing for the son of God. Okay, so in every covenant that we've done so far, we've asked this question, is the covenant conditional or is it unconditional? Is it a, is it a covenant of works where man has to do something or is it a covenant of grace where God will do everything, right? If man fails, will it be broken? How does this work? And we need to ask that question here. There's lots of important texts that we would need to examine to answer this question. I'm going to have to summarize some for you, but try to think of it like this. We know that there's this pattern that emerges in the history of Israel and from the message of the prophets. That just like with the covenant with Moses, the covenant with Israel, there were blessings and curses. If you obey, it will go well for you, right? But if you disobey, it will not go well for you. It's a covenant of works. There's curses. If Israel obeys, they will not inherit the land. They will not have God as their God. And that happened in many ways. And just like the covenant with Israel, where there's blessings and curses, the same is true here, in that the kings, when the kings obey God, they will have God's favor. But when the kings disobey God, they will not have God's blessing. Now think about the history of Israel. 
As it goes with the king, so it goes with the people. God will discipline these kings with the rod of man. But here's what's remarkable. Even when the kings are disciplined, the covenant will not be ruined. Those kings and the people under them will not experience God's blessing. They can't experience this blessing without a faithful king. Turn with me to Psalm 132, okay? We're going to flip around a little bit. Y'all are doing good. It's a little different. Psalm 132. There's a couple key texts to notice. And you can see that I chose this one because you can see it quickly in just one verse. Now the covenant here, or the context here is the covenant with David, right? Lots of that in this text. But if you look down at verse 12, let me find verse 12. Uh, here's what we read, okay? In verse 11, we're talking about the, the Lord swore to David a sure oath. And then in verse 12, if your sons keep my covenant, okay, the sons of David, and my testimonies that I teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. Okay, do you see the conditional nature here? If they keep the covenant, then they shall sit on the throne forever. Right? Do you see that? The eternal throne will be secure only if the sons are obedient. Okay? Do you feel that weight? Okay, now turn to Psalm 89. This is the bigger one. We could spend the whole night on this, which I will try not to do. Definitely need to turn here and see this one. Psalm 89. Okay? Psalm 89 is another psalm that is largely about the covenant with David. And there is major tension here. Verses 3 and 4. The psalmist, uh, Ethan the Ezraite. Okay? The psalmist is, he's talking to God and he's saying, Hey, I've, he's saying to God, God has made a covenant with my chosen one that he swore to David. Right? And then he repeats it. I will establish your offspring forever and build a throne, build your throne for all generations. Does everyone see that? So he's, he's repeating, he's recognizing, hey, God made this covenant with David and he says it's permanent. Right? Forever. But then if you jump ahead and look over to verse 30, uh, verse 30 we also see again that there are conditions. Right? Like we saw in 132. Verse 30. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commands, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod. Does that sound familiar? Then verse 32. uh, Okay, so there's clearly conditions. This king must obey. Right? But then look at verse 33. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. That's a long time, right? Like the moon, it shall be established forever. We could keep going. So we see the covenant is conditional and it's unconditional, right? Do you see this tension here? God has sworn by what? His holiness. 
This covenant, David's offspring, will endure forever. And the rest of the psalm, the psalmist is wrestling with the fact that, okay, God, I remember all this, but I'm looking around and it doesn't seem like this is happening. Right? It doesn't seem like this is happening. What it seems like is that you don't love us anymore. That you've removed your favor. Think about Israel's history for a moment. Think about all the ups and downs. Good kings, bad kings, good times, bad times. And then think about how it ended. The kingdom is eventually divided. So now we got two kings and they fight with each other, right? And then eventually the kingdoms are sacked. And not only do the kingdoms cease to exist, but the kings cease to exist. And they're taken away into exile. It's like they're back in slavery. So how in the world does it make sense when there's no king at all? Right? You can understand what the psalmist is saying. There's no king. How is God going to keep his word that he's going to always have a king of David. Well, this helps us understand Psalm 89, verse 49. The psalmist says, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? Where did it go? By which you swore, by your faithfulness, you swore to David. Where did it go? What happened? Okay, let's try to make some conclusions. What do we make of this covenant with David so far? Is it conditional or is it unconditional? You'll see why it's important in a minute. It's both. Okay, don't miss this. There is tension here. God will certainly fulfill this covenant. But the covenant must be realized with a faithful, obedient king. Okay? You get it? God will fulfill the covenant, but the covenant must be fulfilled through an obedient son. Any bells going off for you yet? God will not fulfill this covenant until there is a faithful king. And that king must be a son of David. Okay, I said it's hard to overstate how central this is to the Bible. The histories, the prophets, the psalmists, the New Testament writers, they were obsessed with this. Almost every single book frames part of its message with this covenant to David. You don't have to turn there, but towards the end of the histories in 2 Chronicles, listen, like when things are looking really bad, listen to this verse. This is uh, 2 Chronicles 21.7. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant he had made with David. And since he had promised to give him a lamp and his sons to, to him and to his sons forever. Right? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, prophet after prophet are constantly reminding God's people, God has not forgotten his covenant with David. Even in spite of exile, somehow God is going to make sure that a Davidic king will be established and that that scepter will never depart from his hand. Jeremiah 23, verse 5 and 6. This is a great place to see it. You may do better just to listen. Just listen to this. Jeremiah is just one example. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king. And deal wisely, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. 
In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel, and they will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. You hear that? Jeremiah is saying, this king will come. The king of David will come. And notice that his focus is on the character of this king. Unlike Saul, unlike Solomon, unlike David, unlike all of them, this king will be wise. He will be just. He will be righteous. And in fact, under his rule, God's people will be saved and they will be safe. It's a picture of total human flourishing. Doesn't that sound good? It's a picture of total rest from the people of God's enemies. This branch, right, this stump of David will have the character that Adam and Noah and Israel and Solomon all failed to have. Do you remember the famous Christmas passage in Isaiah chapter 9, right? I can't read all of it. Let me just read some of it. It'll get it triggered. When it says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a what? Son is given. And then it goes on to say, of the increase of his government, there will be, and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of who? David, and over his kingdom, to establish and to uphold it forever. Suddenly things are starting to become clear. God is going to bless the entire world. He promised to Abraham he's going to bless the entire world through this worldwide global rule, this kingdom. Somehow, the sin of Israel is not going to be the final word. God will make it happen. Where's this faithful king going to come from? We don't know. But God's going to make it happen. But one thing's for sure, God will not budge on the character of this king. He must be righteous. Now, I hope you're tracking with me and I hope you're feeling some of this tension. I also hope that you're starting to anticipate how this is going to be resolved, right? How is the Davidic covenant fulfilled? Where is the righteous son of David? Who is this king that will rule for God? Where is this great house God promised to build David? Well, the overwhelming, dominant, smack you in the face message of the New Testament writers is what? Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is this Davidic king. I, I, I mean, open to the New Testament, close your eyes, pick a verse. You'll probably find a reference to it, right? Let me, I, I picked one for you. Listen to how the angels announced the identity of this mysterious virgin child. He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will rule and reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Luke 1, 32. And more than that, the, the gospel writers all identify Jesus as the Christ. It's a word that means the anointed one. That means he's the king. When Peter answers the question that Jesus asks him, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. See, you've got to understand what Peter is saying. 
He is declaring that Jesus is the son of David and Jesus is the son of God. And he was right. Friends, when Jesus went into the wilderness, when this son of Israel went into the wilderness, he proved that he was the faithful son. When Israel, the nation, went into the wilderness, they did bad. They didn't rule over serpents. They were ruled by serpents, right? Trace that later. Jesus, he dealt with the serpent in the wilderness. He never disobeyed. He proved he was the faithful son. Finally, there's this king, this son of David, who could go through the wilderness and he could come out keeping all of the stipulations of the covenant. And so do you see what God has done? In Jesus, both elements of the covenant with David are realized. In spite of all of Israel's sin, God fulfills his unbreakable promise to David by providing a son, and Jesus fulfills all the stipulations of the covenant. Right? This is why Jesus, when he... They all thought Jesus was coming to rule in Jerusalem, right? He's the son of David. He's the king. Put him on a donkey. Okay, we'd rather it be a horse, but okay, we'll deal with the donkey. So we'll, we'll greet him. And then suddenly he's being crucified. And none of it makes sense. But then just as soon as he died and rose from the dead, Mark read this from Hebrews 1.3. Where did Christ go? Don't forget this. After making purifications of sin... Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What kind of place is that? That's a throne. That's where a king sits. Friends, Jesus is ruling right now. This very moment. And Revelation gives us a picture. We can't walk through all this. It would be so fun, right? If y'all would let me preach for an hour and a half, we would do it. But I know that... Tonight's probably not the night to ask you, right? If we could walk through Revelation, we would see again and again that Jesus reigns. He reigns. He reigns now, but one day soon, Jesus will return and he will reign visibly. And every knee will bow, every time will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Whether they're in heaven, whether they're on the earth, whether they're under the earth, they're going to bow their knees and they're going to acknowledge Jesus is King. This crucified son of David who hung naked on a cross, he is King. That day is coming. And for us as Christians, we recognize Jesus is already seated in his place of honor and power and authority. And he's going to come and he's going to reign. And his kingdom will be consummated and we will see him as Lord. And you won't be tempted to disobey anymore. Because you'll see him in his beauty. So do you see how this brings us full circle? And just think, I mean, this is why we're doing this series, is because we've got to use all the Bible. The commission, think back to Adam. I know there's like Bible whiplash here. Think back to Adam, right? What did God tell Adam to do? He gave him a commission, live in the garden, and rule. Rule over the world. What did he tell him to rule? Animals, for one. Right? What did Adam do? He got tricked by a snake. Right? (laughs) He had one job. (laughs) 
And Christ fulfills this. Christ comes showing dominion over all the earth and all the animals. And in Revelation, not not only do we see Christ reigning forever, but we also see him defeating a serpent, right? The dragon cast into the sea. Whatever it means, we got a pretty clear picture. Evil is defeated and Jesus wins. And guess who reigns with him? We do. It's what Adam was supposed to do in the beginning. It's what Noah is supposed to do. It's what Israel is supposed to do. It's what David is supposed to do. It's what they're all supposed to do to reign under God's rule in a way that shows he is the best thing. And so I want people to look at my life and tell Jesus must be glorious by how that guy obeys. Now this is a hard topic to do justice in 40 minutes. And so what I'm going to do is I want to try to make some rapid applications, right? Rapid fire. Take, take one, take them all, think about them. Hopefully, you're, hopefully bells are going off for you. Hopefully this will pay dividends as you read the Bible. Here's just some rapid applications. Number one, God is the ruler of the universe and he demands our obedience. I know you know this, but let me just remind you. There's a God who rules and reigns and he has something to say to you about how you live. About how you think about how you use your money, about how you speak. God has something to say. And you don't get to do what you want to do. He does not give sin a pass. In this covenant, he demanded an obedient king, and he did not buckle on that. Sin must be dealt with by God. It just so happened that God had to provide it himself. And friends, don't forget that Jesus is also a king. Like right now. Which means, in part, that he rules over your circumstances. He rules over evil. He rules over your struggles. He rules over your physical difficulties. He rules over your struggle with sin. And he will be victorious. And you have access to him. Yes, we worship a crucified Lord But he rose from the dead. And he is now seated at the highest, most exalted place in all the universe with the most power you can imagine. And so obey him. And ask him for help. Both. And friends, we need his help, don't we? Doesn't this story highlight human inability? I mean, we we walk through all the kings, king after king after king after king. They're duds. Even the good ones, right? Even David, right? You've heard the story a thousand times. Even the good ones fail. You and I are not kings, but we are in Adam's legacy. We are in the legacy of the ones who rebel against God. And so we need Christ's obedience to be credited to our lives or we have no hope to stand before God. We need a substitute. And Jesus is that substitute. Uh, A second point of application. uh, Sin does not derail God's plan. Sin does not derail God's plan. This is such a comfort to us. It's hard to get the proper scope of the Bible. It's so big. It covers so much history and so much time. But I hope tonight that you get a little bit more of a sense of the scope of how much sin God endured from his people. Just think of Israel in the wilderness. Just think of all the kings, all the failures. Think of his disciples. 
Man, those guys were rough on the edges. God has tolerated so much sin, but do you get a sense of how much grace He has doled out? How merciful He is? Oh, what a glorious truth this is. For those of us who are safe within this new covenant, this covenant of God's love, we have a sure and steady promise that God is working in our lives, even amidst sin. He's bringing us home. I know you struggle with sin. I know you're struggling. I'm struggling. Sin doesn't derail God's plan. If you're in the covenant with Him, He's going to bring you safely home. Perhaps, you're, perhaps you've got circumstances in your life where you look and you say, I've screwed up so big, I'm dealing with consequences because I've sinned in big ways. Well, friends, if I could just encourage you, if you are God's, He's not done with you. He is not done with your life. He is committed to you. And your sin doesn't put Him off because He loves you. So take heart and take your sin mess, take it to Jesus. He's, he's king and he's a great high priest. And he'll accept you. It's not too rapid. Here's a rapid application. Jesus is better than you thought. Okay? Point three. Point four. Last one. We are a house for his name. God's promise to David, remember, was, I'll build you a house and the house would be for my name. Friends, where is that house? We are that house, the church. We are God's temple. Paul says, do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? The temple teaches us that God wants to dwell with his people. And God isn't concerned with lavish furnishings and luxury. If Leviticus and Numbers teach us anything, if Exodus teaches anything, it's that God is concerned with holiness. He's concerned with our holiness. So I'm going to close tonight by asking you this question. Are you striving to live a holy life? Are you so comfortable with the gospel that sin isn't a big deal? Or are you striving to live a holy life? Are you abhorring sin? Are you doing battle with your continual sin struggles? Do you repent quickly when you fail? God's called us to holiness. So let's be a place, a place where God dwells that is holy and enjoys the presence of God. Let me close this in prayer. God, knit together what is unclear. Encourage our hearts as we go. Dwell among us as your people. And thank you for Jesus, the King. We ask this in his name. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.